Great. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out. We have a, uh, a really two distinguished uh, advocates here to talk about the Clean Power Plan, which is currently pending before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and who knows what the result will be. But it was argued in a mammoth argument that took seven, eight hours, uh, about that long. A full, the, the D.C. Circuit sitting on banc, really quite an unusual uh, event for the D.C. Circuit, which takes most administ administrative cases uh, as just normal fare. Well, this is clearly not a normal administrative case. So the case involves, um, and I'm going to be very brief here, the, the administration's clean power plan, which was promulgated by the Environmental Protection Agency under a provision of the Clean Air Act, uh, Section 111D, which provides for um, performance standards for, um, for existing sources of, of emissions of air pollutants. And in Massachusetts v. EPA, some years earlier, the Supreme Court concluded that um, greenhouse gases were or could be uh, air pollutants and therefore regulable under the Clean Air Act. So EPA proceeded based on that uh, decision and a concern about reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the United States proceeded to adopt this rule under Section 111D. And the rule focuses on the electric utility industry and uh, establishes a target for reductions of greenhouse gas emissions from that industry. And that target is distributed under the rule to individual states who are then tasked with achieving reductions consistent with that target <clears throat> or budget. So the, so the rule relies upon um, a state planning process established elsewhere in the Act for the states to come up with enforceable measures to achieve the targets that EPA has set for it. A distinctive feature and a very controversial feature of the, of the Clean Power Plan is that EPA's calculations of what the states should be expected to reduce, um, those calculations are based not only on the efficiencies that might be achieved by fossil fuel fired generating facilities, you know, reducing emissions per unit of electricity generated by becoming more efficient. EPA's calculations also include potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the electric utility sector based on generation shifting. And generation shifting means, at least for purposes of this rule, <laughs> uh, has nothing to do with young people and old people. For the purposes of this rule, it, it means replacing emissions from coal-fired plants or replacing the fuel used by uh, electric utility uh, uh, generating facilities shifting from coal to natural gas or fr from, from, from fossil fuels, coal or natural gas, to renewable energy sources. So that, the potential for that generation shifting was part of EPA's calculation and is reflected in the expectations that EPA has imposed um, on the states through this rule. And that became a, a, a central focus of the, of the legal debate about the, about the rule, as you will hear here. As, as, I, th as I think we've agreed today, we're, the, the speakers are going to focus on the statutory dimensions of the case rather than the constitutional dimensions or the, the record issues. So you'll hear some, some um, uh, really sophisticated arguments about uh, what the Clean Air Act means, how to interpret it, what, what the court's role in reviewing an agency's interpretation might be, and so forth. So uh, the, the protocol here today is for uh, Solicitor General Lynn to speak for 15 minutes to present his case on behalf of petitioners contesting the rule. Um, Mr. Restrepo will respond for 15 minutes on behalf of <coughs> EPA and interveners on behalf of EPA. He will then have a five-minute rebuttal, 
And we will close with a, with a five-minute rebuttal from um, Solicitor General Lynn. And then we'll have questions. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me here <clears throat> to FEDSOC, to the Environmental Law Society. Uh, thank you, Andres, for being here. <clears throat> it, is, uh, it is good to be here in the second best Virginia in the country. <clears throat> the first best Virginia, of course, is we took all the good stuff and we left uh, in the 1860s. Um, so full disclosure, uh, obviously, as has been said, I represent the state of West Virginia. The case is called West Virginia versus EPA, so you can sort of figure out what side of it I'm on. Uh, I argued part of the case. It was a marathon session, for those who don't know about it. It was before the full en banc court, with the exception of, of Judge Garland, Chief Judge Garland, who has recused himself, I think, from all cases in the D.C. Circuit while his nomination is pending. Um, <clears throat> but it was a marathon session where there were, the arguments were divided into five different parts. And I argued on behalf of petitioners for the first two. <clears throat> so uh, I'm hoping that I won't be up here as long. So we're here to talk about the Clean Power Plan. Uh, Professor Cannon, I think, gave a, a pretty good introduction. Let me add to that a little bit with some things that I think uh, are going to be relevant to the discussion today. Um, so he, as he said, the, the rule is promulgated under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. And uh, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act is about setting performance standards for certain stationary sources, so as opposed to mobile sources like cars, for instance. Uh, in particular, we're talking here about power plants and more specifically about fossil fuel-fired power plants, so that's both coal and natural gas. There are two provisions that are relevant. One is 111B, as in boy, and one is 111D, as in dog. Uh, I took for a while to refer to them as the boy case and the dog case, and someone told me that I shouldn't refer to our own case as the dog case. So, um, but at any rate, the, the, the D rule is the clean power plant. But the B rule is also important for reasons that will come up later. So 111B it allows EPA and EPA itself to set uh, national emission standards for new or modified sources. So for new or modified clean uh, fossil fuel fired power plants after the, the certain date, they are subject to the 111B rule that was promulgated on the same day as the dog rule. Um, the 111, 111D, as Professor Cannon said, is where EPA can promulgate guidelines and then the states set performance standards for existing sources. So we've got the existing source rule and the new source rule. The clean power plan is about existing sources, uh, but again, the B will come up a little bit later. Now the central statutory provision that we're talking about, there's a phrase, best system of emission reduction. Um, and how, here's how it fits in. So EPA, uh, under both provisions, but in particular under D, what they do is they come up with what they think is the best system of emission reduction. There's no dispute that that's something the administrator picks. He or she, in this case she, has to, she has to demonstrate some statutory standards are met, including something called adequate demonstration, which we're not going to talk about today. Um, and she then, so she takes this best system of emission reduction. She then essentially runs it hypothetically and figures out what she thinks would be the achievable emission rates uh, under, you know, by a power plant hypothetically using the best system of emission reduction. I'll call it the BSER. Andres may do the same thing. Um, and, and then they sort of promulgate these rates. They say these are the rates that we think are achievable under a power plant using the best system of emission reduction. And then the states can set their standard of performance. Here's another thing that's not disputed. We don't dispute that power plants are not required by law to use the best system of emission reduction. That's simply the hypothetical that EPA uses to devise the guidelines or the rates that they think that they would, they would like you know, power plants to achieve. Um, what is the BSER here? The BSER here is three, what they call three building blocks. So it's a system of three things. The first is a certain amount of reductions that are achieved by efficiency improvements at coal-fired power plants. So basically, burn, make the power in a cleaner way, uh, and that will achieve a certain percentage of reductions over what they've been doing before. 
Step two, building block two, is take some of those, the power that is generated at a coal-fired power plant and shift it to a new gas-fired power plant. In other words, stop making as much power over here and make it from this facility, which does it at a lower carbon emissions rate. Okay, that's also not disputed. So that, you know, if you do that, there will be less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, but this is sort of the key question is, you know, can, can EPA require that kind of a shift? Building block three is to shift some of the power generated at fossil fuel-fired power plants, so both coal and gas, and to shift it to new, not yet constructed, renewable energy sources, so wind, solar, but again, new, not things that exist now, but ones that are to be constructed. So that's the BSER. Uh, if I've made a mistake, Andres will correct me, but I'm pretty sure that's a fairly uh, balanced explanation of what it is. So here's the real question. Can they do that under the statute? Can they do what they've called generation shifting, what we call uh, restructuring the mix of energy generation? So in other words, their BSER is to make energy from a different mix of energy sources, right? I mean, they're saying stop making some of that power at coal-fired plants and fossil fuel-fired plants, do it at new gas-generated plants or new renewable energy sources. Um, and I'll talk today, I've been asked to talk about sort of three questions. Uh, and the first is, the first was the focus of the first part of the oral argument, and that's whether Congress has clearly authorized uh, EPA to pick a best system of emission reduction that does that, that shifts generation instead of, in our view, and here I'm going to start to slant into advocacy, but in our view is um, not focused on improving the performance of a particular plant. It's not about making that power in a cleaner way. It's about not making that power at your uh, allegedly dirtier source and instead moving it and making it at a, newer, at, a, at a cleaner source. And our first argument is that we, don't, we, we think that Congress did not clearly authorize it. So there's, there's a, uh, a number of cases that talk about this clear statement canon. And really what's behind that is the courts um, have decided that you know, there are certain powers that they're not going to accept that Congress would have implicitly delegated to an agency, right? They expect for these kinds of powers that Congress would have explicitly delegated. There will be some kind of, now we call it a clear statement rule, that's the way it's referred to in some of these cases, but it's really a question of is it something that you, know, you can sort of infer that an agency has or is, it, or is it the kind of power that you would expect Congress to uh, expressly delegate? And there's two clear statement canons that we think are important here. The first uh, comes from a line of cases the most recent one of which was Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA. But it goes back a ways, it traces back to Brown and Williamson, MCI. If you go and listen to the uh, audio, and I will warn you, I've been told that the audio sounds like robots arguing underwater <laughs> in a tin can. It's not, um, it's not a great audio. Yeah, but Judge Kavanaugh talks a, a lot about the clear statement rule at the oral argument, and as he notes, the godfather of this clear statement rule is uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. And so, what do we do? So we think there's two. The first is this UARG canon. We refer to it as sort of the transformative power canon. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh calls it the major questions doctrine. But basically what it boils down to, if you read this case, UARG versus EPA, I think it was from 2014, uh, it says, if an agency is exercising transformative power over a major portion of the American economy, and it's finding that power in a, quote, long extant statute, so statute has been around for a long time, um, that is a kind of power that you would expect Congress to explicitly delegate and not implicitly delegate. And so our argument is that what they've done here is they are asserting a transformative power based on a long extant statute over a major portion of the American economy. Another way to put it is you guys may have heard this, uh, the very famous Scalia saying, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. It's really what it boils down to, right? They, he they would have done it in a clearer way. And so our point here is we think what they're doing, this generation shifting where they're saying, look, the way we think you can best achieve emission reductions is by actually not uh, producing less of the product that you produce 
and actually taking it to a totally different source, and in some cases a non-regulated source, like a renewable energy source, that that's transformative. That's totally different from the way that Section 111 has been used under the Clean Air Act. Uh, you guys can ask Andres about it later, but Section 111D, the existing source rule, has been used five times in 45 years. Section 111B, for new sources, has been used more than 100 times in that period of time. None, not a single one of those rules, uh, in a single one of those rules, did EPA select a BSER that did not go specifically to the performance of the particular source. So it wasn't, all of those are about something that can be implemented at, incorporated into the operation of the source that makes the, the process cleaner. That's not what this is. This is about changing the way we make energy in this country. And look, the White House said, when this rule was implemented, that this is about driving an aggressive transformation in the domestic energy economy. And I mean, and I'll, you know, you'll hear me say this a couple times, and it, I really do believe it. I mean, this isn't about policy. This is about the rule of law. And the question here is whether you agree with what EPA is doing or not. Is it the kind of thing that they can do under Section 111D? And our point is we think this is transformative because this is a fundamentally different use of the Clean Air Act. Um, because it's not about, let's say, putting a scrubber on a smokestack. It's not about using cleaner coal. It's about changing the way we make energy. And the best way to understand this is the rate that EPA sets. Remember I said you take the BSER, sort of run it through a hypothetical, and you figure out what is the target emission rate. The target emission rate that EPA has selected for these fossil fuel-fired power plants is 1,305 pounds of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour. So just remember that number, 1305. Now, if you remember, I said they promulgated a new source rule at the same time using the same basic idea. What's pick a best system of emission reduction. For the new source rule, they picked a different BSCR. It wasn't generation shifting. It was this thing called uh, partial carbon capture and sequestration. You capture the carbon dioxide and you pump it into the ground. They didn't use that as the BSCR for existing sources, but they did for new sources. That is the allegedly state-of-the-art technology that's available to be used on power plants. The rate that they set for new power plants is 1,400, which is 95 pounds of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour higher than what they're expecting of existing sources. So what does that mean? They're saying that even if you use the state-of-the-art technology that we think you can install on a new power plant, where you don't have to go through the difficulties of retrofitting an existing power plant, you can't even meet the rate that we're requiring for existing power plants. So our point is, look, what they're doing here is not about making power plants burn cleaner. It's about changing the way we make energy in this country. And again, whether you think that's good policy or not, and many people in West Virginia don't because we get a lot of our power from coal, um, we think that that fits squarely within this clear statement canon about transformative power. The other clear statement canon comes from these cases, uh, Bond versus United States, Gregory versus Ashcroft, and I, I call it the federalism clear statement canon. And basically what it says is, an agency, if an agency is exercising power that directly intrudes on an area of a state's traditional authority, there has to be a clear statement. Again, that's the kind of power that because of the respect that we have under the Constitution for the federal state balance, courts demand that Congress expressly delegate the power to intrude on an area of traditional state authority. One traditional area of state authority, and there's no dispute over this either, is the selection of the energy generation mix that we use in our states. And so if you accept my premise, which is that the rule uh, is about changing the way we make energy. So in West Virginia, we get 96% of our power from coal. Our argument is that under this rule, there's no way to meet the rule's emission rate without some lesser amount of power from coal. That that directly intrudes on our traditional authority to decide where we get our power from. Again, some people may think um, that you know, West Virginia shouldn't be able to use 96% of our power from coal because there are externalities. Again, I understand that policy argument, but the question is, does that directly intrude on our authority to choose our mix of electricity generation? If so, under cases like Bond and Gregory, 
in ABA versus FTC in the DC circuit, we think that there's, uh, there has to be a clear statement. Just say one more minute. Um, two other things. Well, then let me just wrap up that point. So you're going to hear a little bit about Chevron. What, is it, what does it mean with the clear statement rule? How does that fit? Um, you know, it's, agencies like to bring up Chevron. They like to talk to judges about Chevron. There's the boogeyman of Chevron. We're trying to, we're trying to undermine Chevron. If you, while well, my answer to the court was, no, you don't have to. If you look at these cases, Bond, you look at UARG, these are all about the application of the clear statement rule at Chevron step two. So it's really just sort of a thumb on the scale. If you've got a statute that you can't figure out, if you think that it's ambiguous, then the tie goes against the agency. Because, again, this is something, it's, it's not the kind of power that you expect Congress to have delegated implicitly. You expect them to have done it explicitly. So if you get to Chevron step two, where you're talking about an ambiguous statute, that's where the, you can apply the clear statement canon there without sort of raising the questions of do we, do we get rid of Chevron. Um, two sort of quick other points. Um, we also think that the text is unambiguous. We also think that it's pretty clear from the clear, uh, Clean Air Act that a best system of emission reduction has to be something that can only be done and, and incorporated into the operation of the source. And how do we get there? Well, the first thing that's important to, to note is that everyone agrees, well, Andres may not, but the EPA agrees uh, that there are limits on what a BSER can be. EPA can't just select whatever they want. Like, for instance, you have to plant a forest next to your power plant. In fact, they say in their brief that that's something that they can't. That's not a system of emission reduction. So there are limits. One of the limits they acknowledge is that it has to be something that is applicable to and implementable by a source. Really, the only dispute between the two sides is what, is that, what is, does that mean something that is implementable and applicable by the source's owner or by the source itself? And the difference is if it's the source's owner, there's a lot more stuff that could be included as a BSER, including what they're talking about here, which is you could have a, a, the source's owner buy, for instance, or buy credits from or build a renewable source or a natural gas facility. However, if it's only applicable to the source, you can't do that because it, it has to be something that is limited to the existing power plant. And we think if you get all the way there, which I think the briefs, pretty much everybody agrees, if that's the only dispute, we think we win because source and owner and operator are defined separately under the statute. And anyone who has taken legislation will know that it is a cardinal principle of statutory interpretation, right, that if two terms are defined separately, they must mean different things. Uh, the final point, and this is very quick, I was also asked to talk about what is the meaning of these, all the environmental cases that the Supreme Court has done recently. Massachusetts versus EPA, Professor Cannon mentioned another case called AEP versus Connecticut. You know, I was asked an argument by um, Judge Millett, I mean, doesn't AEP versus Connecticut basically decide this? And the answer to that is no. AEP versus Connecticut decided, so the issue there was you had some um, entities that were suing under federal common law, and I know some of you have been told federal common law doesn't exist, but it does, uh, were, told, were suing under federal common law to, to essentially, uh, sort of federal nuisance law, to establish these standards. And what the Supreme Court concluded was, no, the Clean Air Act has displaced federal common law. It is within the authority of the EPA to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. But that's as far as it went. And what's important is we're talking about displacement and not preemption, which is a distinction you may not have studied yet, but if you go and read AEP versus Connecticut, all that the Supreme Court said was, this is a power that has been given to EPA, and this is important, whether EPA exercises the power or not. And then it went on to say, uh, and it says, it, Congress has delegated to EPA a decision-making scheme. And then it went on to say, you know, what EPA has the authority to do is figure out whether and how to regulate clean power plants. Now, Andres is going to stand up and say, well, yeah, it says that they can, uh, they, they delegated the authority to determine how, uh, but the how has to be consistent with the Clean Air Act. I, I think it's a vast overreading of AEP versus Connecticut to say that EPA, that the Supreme Court decided in that case that EPA has a blank check uh, to, to, to pick any way that they want to make power plants cleaner. And again, even EPA concedes that there are limits on what they can pick 
as a best system of emission reduction. Thanks. All right, well, thank you very much um, for inviting me here. Thank you to the Federal Society, to ACS, to the Environmental Law Forum. Thank you to Albert uh, for coming and to allow us to have a great conversation about this important topic and to Professor Cannon for moderating. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about why Sierra Club supports this rule, why we think it's legally sound, and why we intervened on behalf of the agency in defense of it. Um, so the first issue I want to talk about is the standard of review. Um, so Chevron, that's, Elbert mentioned it before, but just to, for those of you who may not know it, I imagine most of you do, but just to refresh your memory, the Chevron Doctrine uh, is a Supreme Court precedent that establishes that where a statute is ambiguous, <coughs> the agency charged with administering the statute <coughs> has, uh, it will be given, uh, will be given um, deference by the court in its interpretations of the ambiguous language. So we think that Chevron is the proper standard here. Elbert uh, mentioned that as he reads the clear statement rule, that that's a way of interpreting Chevron with the thumb on the scale. Um, we don't think that that is an appropriate uh, use of Chevron in this instance. Um, you know, what might be described, as I'll describe a little bit more, as an elephant in a mouse hole, we think is really more of a rabbit in a rabbit hutch. Um, so Chevron was itself a Clean Air Act case, I should just remind you. Um, it was about major stationary sources, uh, about EPA's interpretation of the definition of major stationary source within the context of the Clean Air Act. So the foundational case for establishing Chevron really was very similar to, to what we see here. How does EPA regulate air pollution from major industrial sources? So the, the cases that Albert discussed, I'll, I guess I'll first talk about the, the, uh, the first part of the clear statement rule, the King v. Burwell, UARG line of cases. Um, those cases were not just about what the court described as an agency's uh, claiming to have vastly new authority, but it also goes to, it is only um, really applies, as the courts found, when there's a, an issue of deep economic or political significance, or when the agency is, um, is trying to regulate a significant a portion of the American economy. So it's not just new authority, but it's when the agency is really trying to have some major, when the rule would have a major impact, political, economic, and otherwise, on the country. And if you look at, if you compare what's going on in the Clean Power Plan to what we saw in those cases, in UARG, in King v. Burwell, and in FDA v. Brown and Williamson, I think you really see that this is uh, of a whole other order of magnitude. Um, so just to, to give you a couple of numbers, the Clean Power Plan, EPA has, um, has judged the uh, compliance costs. It's evaluated the compliance costs across a range of, um, uh, of, of, of scenarios. There are actually different ways that, that um, states can set up their plans in order to comply with the rule. It doesn't necessarily have to be a rate-based plan. It could be a mass-based plan. There's multiple options. Um, the agency found that the compliance costs range from $1 billion annually across the entire industry for a given year to $8 billion at the upper end. Now compare that to King v. Burwell. The, uh, the costs of the healthcare subsidies that were at, at issue in that case were $150 billion. <clears throat> in UARG, uh, the EPA regulation at issue there would have resulted in annual compliance costs of $147 billion, almost the same as the King v. Burwell numbers. And then an, an additional $21 billion in UARG for administrative costs, an increase from $62 million. So you compare $1 billion, $1 to $8 billion annually to $150 billion, you see this is one to two orders of magnitude less significant economically than those cases. Um, and then that's, that's also something that you see when you actually look at what those cases were, were uh, trying to do. Um, UARG is the most clear analogy. The regulations at issue there would have increased the scope of EPA's regulatory authority under the Prevention of Significant De Deterioration Program from 15,000 covered sources to 6.1 million. That's an enormous increase. Uh, by contrast, the Clean Power Plan would apply only to about 1,000 major sources, uh, large power plants, all of which have been regulated under a half a dozen Clean Air Act programs over the last four and a half decades. So <clears throat> in terms of what the statute is actually doing, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it really does not have nearly the same types of, uh, it's not covering blazingly new ground like some of these other cases. I mean, likewise, under King v. Burwell, um, 
the health coverage for millions of Americans were at, at issue in FDA v. Brown and Williamson, an entire industry, the tobacco industry, which had never been subject to FDA regulations, would now be subject to them under the FDA action. Uh, again, by contrast, the clean power, the units, all of the units covered in the clean power plan have been subject to EPA regulation for decades. Um, so I think you're really just seeing a different order of magnitude. Um, and, you know, really, I think, and this is a point that, you know, Judge Griffith made, he gave uh, a vigorous question to both sides, but he did point out that the actual, what is required in terms of the sector-wide change, uh, or not required, but what is expected to result um, in terms of uh, the generation mix across the country is really quite modest. Um, just to give you an example of that, just one number, there's many different ways of looking at this. Uh, according to the Energy Administration Institute, the percentage of coal generation uh, across the country um, in 2006 was approximately 50% of all electricity generation. A decade later, 2015, it had dropped to 34%, so from 50 to 34% in 10 years. And then in the last 12 months for which we have data, which ending in July of this year, it's down to about less than 31%. So from 50% in 2006 to 30 to 31% over the last 12 months. Now, EPA's projections would show the nationwide coal mix dropping to about 27% by 2030. That's 14 years from now. So 31% or 30% down to 27% is a very modest change. This really, this rule capitalizes upon trends that have already been occurring in the electric sector that very well could occur without the rule, that probably will occur without the rule. Um, and in that sense, it's really, uh, it's really not effectuating the type of large-scale change that I think would be necessary for application of the clear statement rule. Um, and then very quickly, as far as the, the bond line of cases, the federalism case, uh, we also would disagree with the um, proposition that this radically or even significantly has a direct impact on the fate st uh, state federal balance uh, in terms of um, energy regulation. Um, this rule, as we see it, is not, it regulates emissions from power plants. And any type of regulation uh, of power plants will have some indirect impact on fuel mix. As Elbert mentioned before, it's correct that the BSER uh, is based upon the premise that, um, that generation shifting can occur, but it doesn't require it. It's simply used to set the number. Um, and in that sense, the law doesn't set electricity rates. It, or I'm sorry, the, the regulation doesn't set electricity rates. It doesn't approve or disapprove of capital expenditures for utilities. These are all the traditional things that states do in terms of regulating energy. It doesn't oversee utility resources mix, and it doesn't mandate any particular fuel mix. It does set CO2 rates based upon what is achievable by those states, but it doesn't directly enter the realm of uh, energy regulation that is traditionally the province of states. So that's why we don't think that the bond line of cases is applicable either. So just shifting now gears, I want to talk a little bit about BSER. Um, so if you'll just bear with me for a moment, uh, I'm going to read to you the language of the statute in this regard. It's a little bit of a mouthful. So the term standard of performance, this is section 111D, means a standard for emissions of air pollutants, which reflects the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of the best system of emissions reduction, which taking into account the costs of achieving such reduction and any non-air quality, health, and environmental impact and energy requirements the administrator determines has been adequately demonstrated. Okay, so that's a mouthful. Um, I agree with Albert. That is not an unlimited grant of authority to the agency. There are limitations there. What I would argue, though, is that those limitations are specific and enumerated in the words of the statute. So um, the, the limitations are the, uh, the system has to be achievable, it has to be the best system, as EPA determines, taking partially into account the extent of emission reductions it will achieve. It has to be um, reasonable, meaning non-exorbitant from a cost perspective. It has to account for non-air health and environmental impacts, as well as energy requirements. And it has to be adequately demonstrated. What we don't see, there's no requirement in those words that say that the measures that make up BSER have to be implementable within the four walls of the source itself. That's adding, as we would say, it's grafting a new requirement onto statutory language that is not there. So I, you know, if, if Albert says a tie goes to the runner, I don't know if this even is a tie. But in this case, I think that it's not, because we just do not see this requirement in the statute. Um, 
Now, if you also look at why is it that EPA has not done, uh, has not issued a performance standard or an emissions guidelines under Section 111D in the past that looks at off-site measures? Um, well, I think the most important thing is that the nature of the electric sector is very different from other sectors in the sense that all power plants are hooked up together to an electric grid that orders their operation based upon what any given unit in the system is doing with respect to other units. So if you have a system that, or a plant that runs less, other plants will automatically be called upon to, uh, to run more. Likewise, the characteristics of carbon dioxide mean that it doesn't matter where it's emitted, it has the same environmental impacts globally regardless of the location. So in this sense, the electric sector really is a very different type of source from other major sources. And given those unique characteristics of it and of the pollutant in question, we think that it would not really, it would, I would argue, be uh, arbitrary and capricious for EPA not to take that into account when setting, uh, when, when setting uh, emission guidelines. The, the interconnected nature means that generation shifting can occur. It allows for um, the most, the greatest amount of emissions reduction at the lowest cost compared to all other types of ap approaches. Um, now, many of the petitioners, including, as I understand it, West Virginia in its comments to EPA, have actually asked the agency to allow for credits to be used that represent generation shifting to, to, for compliance with the rule. In other words, they don't want the best system of emissions reduction to reflect opportunities for generation shifting, but they do want this, this technique to be used to be allowed for compliance. Now, that asymmetry, as we see it, doesn't stand to reason. If, as petitioners acknowledge, or at least many of them acknowledge, uh, generation shifting is a realistic, affordable, and already occurring means of reducing emissions, then we would ask why shouldn't it be used to set the standard? That's a question that Judge Srinivasan seemed to be posing to, uh, to the petitioners at the oral argument. Um, and then lastly, in my affirmative case, I just want to briefly mention uh, the Supreme Court precedents. Um, I agree, again, with Albert that AEP versus Connecticut doesn't say that doesn't give a blank check to EPA. But what it does do is it, it, it has to be a meaningful opinion, right? The court, if um, the EPA's authority under Section 111D to regulate CO2 emissions for power plants is actually going to mean something to the extent that it displaces federal common law nuisance suits, then EPA has to have a realistic option of actually achieving emission reductions. Now, there's really sort of three approaches they could take. One would be to, re, uh, to require or to at least base a BSER on efficiency improvements at the plants themselves and nothing more. But as all parties seem to acknowledge, that would result in little or no ultimate CO2 reductions if all the only measure involved is efficiency improvements at plants. They could require on-site measures only, such as a combination of carbon capture and sequestration and natural gas co-firing at coal plants, that would achieve real reductions, but at a much greater cost than what EPA has done here. And I think we can be, you know, given the fact that uh, many of the petitioners have challenged EPA's uh, use of carbon capture and sequestration as BSER for the 111B rule, the BOY rule, I think you can be pretty sure that they would similarly challenge it uh, in the context of a 111D rule. Now, I don't concede that a BSER for existing plants based upon carbon capture and sequestration and or co-firing would be unlawful. I think that it certainly could be plausible, but the fact is it would be much more expensive. And the last option is what EPA did, which is a set of BSER based upon efficiency improvements and generation shifting that would achieve real reductions at a reasonable cost. Uh, in, as we see it, that is really the only way of actually giving meaning to AEP. It doesn't mean that they have a blank check, but it does mean that there has to be something real uh, to EPA's authority that that to make that holding mean something. Um, do I have time for a quick rebuttal? Okay, just um, a couple of statements. So uh, as far as this issue of sources versus operators, uh, you know, is, is a source the plant itself or is it the owner-operator? A source is not, an, is, it's an inanimate object. A source can't comply with a requirement. A source can't purchase a scrubber and install it. Uh, you know, anything that any means of reducing emissions at a plant has to be instigated by the operator. Um, so for instance, if, the oper if, if a source complies either by acquiring credits or by uh, installing uh, an emissions control device, that is something that the owner-operator has to do. So I don't really think that that is 
as I see it, a major point of distinction that, that will be a major issue, although I could be wrong. Um, and then, you know, the issue about uh, the, the difference between new and existing source standards. Um, Elbert mentioned that the uh, new source standard for coal-fired power plants is 1,400 pounds per megawatt hour, whereas the existing source standard is 1,305. The reason those numbers are different, the new source standard does not account for emission reduction credits. The new source standard, or the existing source standard rather does. The cost of complying with the existing source standard for a particular plant is significantly lower, even though that number looks higher, or looks lower. It's really comparing apples and oranges. And I think the last point I just want to make is, you know, and th this is, the, the briefs and the oral arguments all focused on the emission rates. And, uh, you know, for good reason, EPA said that the emission rate is the primary uh, expression of BSER. But the most important thing I just, or at least one of the important things I want to leave you all with is that there are many different routes for complying with this. M most states, as we predict, are probably going to adopt some type of a mass-based approach, which doesn't require it to meet any particular rate per megawatt hour at all. It simply caps the state's total emissions from regulated units at a certain number. Um, you know, states, some states may do one, some may do the other, but I think that you can see many states are looking at the mass-based option, which in that sense, it, it has a completely different set of ramifications. And I think, you know, whether, what the legal, uh, what the legal um, meaning of that is, you know, given that the rates are the primary expression of BSER, may be subject to debate. But I think for the purposes of really looking at what this rule means for the real world, we have to look at it, what's actually going to happen. Um, and if you look at many of the states, incl uh, including Virginia, actually, um, EPA's budget for those states, if they are going to take a, a mass-based plan based solely on existing units, are actually lower. Uh, their emissions today are lower than their targets for each year in the compliance period from 2020 or 2022 to 2030. So, you know, I think something like 12 of the states or nine of the states had just from the get-go, they're already in compliance with their targets. And other states which have uh, um, targets that are higher than what their initial rate, uh, initial mass uh, emissions were, for instance, Arkansas recently announced that it's already in compliance with its entire set of goals through 2030. That's one of the states that's challenging the Clean Power Plan. So I think maybe this goes back to my initial point that, you know, realistically, is this going to have major ramifications? I think it's an important rule. I think it's an important first step. But, you know, I would describe it much more as, as I said, a, a rabbit <laughs> than an elephant. It's, it's a good step in the right direction, but I don't think it is, um, it is dramatically going to alter either the, uh, either the, the fuel mix around the country or, um, or the state-federal balance. The fuel mix around the country is already changing for reasons having to do with, you know, for reasons other than are existing in the clean power plan. The price of renewables are dropping. Um, the just relationship of coal to gas uh, economically is changing. So I think that that's, um, you know, stepping back a minute from, you know, the very precise technicalities of this, I think if we look at the larger scale, uh, we really see something different from uh, what we've seen in petitioner's arguments. So I think that's, uh, that's what I've got for now, and I'll let Albert respond. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let me just start with uh, with this. The move that the other side likes to make is to not focus on what the rule actually is and to talk about either what's happening in the real world, which we dispute and I get to in a second. But this idea, and uh, Andres had mentioned Judge Srinivasan asking about it, about sort of compliance measures versus BSER, right? He says, don't focus on the rates uh, because, look, there's a lot of ways to meet the rates or uh, West Virginia and others have asked in their comments for generation shifting as a compliance measure, but then they turn around and say that that's not permissible as a BSER. Well, there's a significant difference between a compliance measure and what the rule can require. I mean, I don't think anyone in this room would agree that just because you do something in the real world means that the federal government can require you to do it, or the state government. And that's really the fundamental difference here. How we can meet the rule is separate from on what bases they can determine, uh, um, they can use to determine what the required rates are. And EPA itself recognizes this. So remember we talked about the three building blocks. When they proposed this rule, there were actually four building blocks. There were the three that we talked about, and then the fourth were demand side measures. In other words, 
measures to require for it was assume, um, state law, state provisions that would essentially force a reduction on the demand side, so pe make people use less electricity. EPA got a lot of comments on that, and they ultimately conceded in the final rule that they couldn't do that as a BSER. However, they said, we are still going to allow it as a compliance measure. So they recognized, again, the difference, that there are certain things that they're allowed to pick as the BSER, and certain things that they can't, but are still permissible ways of complying. And so there's some disagreement amongst the petitioners as to whether or not you could use generation shifting, uh, this sort of idea of moving power from one source to another source, as a compliance measure. But the point is, everybody agrees, at least on our side, that that is not something you can use as a BSER. And so that comes back to the rates. The rates are the primary expression of the rule. That's what is required, that's, that's what has to be met the sort of mass-based system, the other compliance measures, everything, you, you'll hear about some other numbers that the states can meet. But as EPA says, all of that stuff is based on the 1,305 number. And the important thing to remember, because this gets back to sort of what is this rule about, is the number that they're requiring existing plants to meet, 1,305, is almost 100 pounds per megawatt hour below what they're saying can be achieved by a brand new plant built from the ground up using state-of-the-art technology. Practically, that means that there is no way to meet the 1,305 number unless a coal-fired power plant does one of two things. One, shut down, or two, buy credits, so things that you can use to sort of mathematically bring down your rate, uh, from a renewable source that is producing renewable energy and has credits. And here's the really important thing. We're talking about rates, right? We're not talking about a, a, a a certain amount of carbon dioxide, your rate of production as a power plant does not go down if you produce less power. Okay, and so here's, here's an example. If you're making a cake from the same recipe, and you make a cupcake or you make a giant room-sized cake, the caloric content per serving is the same. And that's the same thing with rates. A power plant, whether it produces a lot of power or a little power, has the same rate. And the problem here is that the rate that they have set is so low that it cannot be met by an existing power plant unless they either shut down, which gets them to zero, or they buy credits by subsidizing the construction of a new renewable energy facility. And that's really the, that's really the heart of this whole thing, is what is the rule doing? And if you accept our premise, the rule is about transforming, changing the mix of electricity generation. And that's very different from, you know, Andres was talking about, what about all these other rules that have an indirect effect on the state's ability to pick their energy generation? Well, those all have an indirect effect. They all set rates that could theoretically be met by the regulated source, and, but maybe the regulated source decides it costs too much money, right? Or there are other reasons why they just don't want to meet it, and so they go out of business. The problem here is there's no way for an existing source to meet the rate that they've set. And so this is a qualitatively different rule, and that's why it's a transformative uh, exercise of power. Andres talked about, um, you know, what do those cases stand for? That's going to be a question the D.C. Circuit's going to have to decide. You know, what do they think UARG stands for? What do they think King versus Burwell stands for? There's a fundamental disagreement between us about what they stand for. You guys should read the cases. They're very important administrative law cases. Um, but I think that it doesn't matter. You know, there were a lot of numbers thrown around here. I don't, think it, I don't think it matters what the practical impact is, although, as I will say in a second, I think there is a huge practical impact. Because what Scalia said in UARG versus EPA is that the EPA's exercise of authority there made the statute unrecognizable to the Congress that enacted it. So it is about the transformation of the legal authority that's being asserted. And we think here that by exercising a, legal, the, a power to change, again, the mix of electricity generation. West Virginia can't use 96% of coal if we're going to meet power from coal, if we're going to meet that rate. It's got to be something less than that. However much less that is, is sort of beside the point. The point is that EPA has promulgated a rule that is making us change that mix of electricity generation, and that is a power that not even the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has. The Federal Power Act specifically prohibits FERC from uh, licensing and dictating where new electricity generation is going to be built. That is power that's left to the states. Um, 
As to the um, statutory meaning of the sort of, so, whether it has to be something, a BSCR has to be something that's implementable by or um, incorporated into the source, whether those limits exist. I mean, as I had alluded to, I think in the opening presentation, I think Andres just disagrees with what EPA says. They concede in their rule that it has to be something that is implementable by and applicable to the source. And the reason they concede that is because when you look at the statute, it's not just, you don't just read, right, again, another cardinal principle of statutory interpretation, you don't just read that one provision. There are a number of other parts of Section 111 that talk about the application of a standard of performance to an individual source. EPA concedes that that statutory context means that its BSCR has to be something that is implementable by a particular source. In terms of whether this difference between source and owner-operator makes a difference, of course it makes a difference because if it's something that has to be implemented by the source, at the source, that is a smaller universe of things than an owner-operator can do because an owner-operator can enter into agreements with other owner-operators, they can build re new renewable energy facilities and sources can't do that. And again, the statutory terms are defined separately, so we think that that's something that EPA can't do. Um, my last point is, oh, two final points. Just on the, in terms of what's the effect of this going to be, so EPA's projections are that the share of coal in terms of the mix of electricity generation is going to go from 30 to 27%. So first of all, we don't think that the practical impact really matters. But second of all, uh, there's a dispute. If you look at the numbers from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which is by statute the nonpartisan uh, primary federal agency on energy statistics, not the environmental agency, but the energy statistics agency, they project that over the life of the clean power plan, uh, the share of coal will go from 30% to 20% of the market, which to me seems like a pretty big change. My last point would be in terms of AEP, Andre says that, um, you know, yes, AEP doesn't give uh, EPA a blank check. He agrees, but he says, but it has to it has, there has to, be, it has to be a power that is meaningful. Well, so that's very different from give it meaning, right? He says, and so he doesn't say it has to give AEP meaning. He says it has to give AEP, it has to be meaningful. And by meaningful, what he means is it's not as much, if, if, if EPA doesn't have the ability to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by as much as they want, then that's not meaningful. Because he said there are three ways to do this, and the first way would result in, and he says, little to no, uh, there's some dispute over what that means, but little is some, right? And if you disagree, if we think that EPA should have more power, then we should go back to Congress, and Congress should make that change. But I don't think that just because under our interpretation of the statute, which we think is the right one, that EPA would have only a small amount of, of power in the sense that they can only reduce a small amount of emissions, that that doesn't mean that AEP has no meaning. Maybe it's not meaningful in the view of the respondents, um, but we certainly have, it certainly doesn't interpret the case to have no meaning. And that's all I've got. Thanks. So we have some time for questions, if our uh, advocates are willing. Yeah. Um, He's on. Yeah. 